The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center, sponsored by General Dynamics Information Technology. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of government contracting. Amtower Off Center with your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here today with somebody I've been meaning to invite for a really long time and just never got around to it. So David Berteau, president of PSC, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you for coming in. Mark, it's my pleasure. And uh, even if it's overdue, I hope it's worthwhile. I'm sure it's going to be worthwhile. So uh, first, start off with a little background of you. I I ran your... uh, your LinkedIn profile earlier, so I have some some idea, and it's it's pretty damn impressive. Well, one of the things that you can see by looking at that is I tend to move around a little bit. Uh, you know, I, I first came to Washington uh, uh, and and went to work for the Pentagon in 1981 at the beginning of the Reagan administration, and I arrived just in time to be part of the Carlucci initiatives, the acquisition reform package that Deputy Secretary Frank Carlucci put together. He originally had 31 initiatives until he brought them up to the Senate Armed Service Committee. And Senator Carl Levin, who was uh, a member of that committee, said, haven't you uh, missed one key initiative, Mr. Secretary? And uh, Carlucci said, what's that? He said, you need to have competition as one of your initiatives. And so not only did competition become the 32nd initiative, but it actually led uh, three years later to the enactment of something that still dominates our contracting world, which is the Competition and Contracting Act, both Seeker. its realities and its uh, and its exceptions. And so so I cut my teeth early on uh, on acquisition and acquisition and procurement. And, and really, uh, that has that has affected my whole career. Yeah. And, and you're, you were coming in at the time when the uh, the technology and the technology services were really beginning to dominate. They were. And, and one of the things that I've certainly seen over the time that uh, I've been uh, both in government and out of government, because I, I spent a dozen years at the Pentagon, then I worked for a, a private sector company, SAIC, for a number of years in the 1990s. Uh, and moved into an academic uh, role up at uh, with the Maxwell School at Syracuse University, but I was running an executive leadership development program under contract to DOD as part of that, uh, and I became a consultant, ended up as a scholar at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, went back to DOD, and then came to the Professional Services Council. There's a couple of constants in there, though, in terms of, of evolution, and one is the one you mentioned, right? Um, the government whether it was DOD or the civilian agencies, Mm -hmm. back in the 1960s, 1970s, even into the 1980s, was looking for innovation primarily from places where they invested their own time and effort, right? But what we now have is a world where innovation, whether it's a new thing or a new system or a new process, and in the services business, that's really where you focus your attention. An awful lot of that innovation is now coming from outside, And one of the real challenges we see, and we can spend some time on this later on in in the program here, is how does the government figure out where that innovation is, especially in systems and process innovation, and how do they access that? We were just starting to do that back in the 1980s. Yeah, and and the the, uh, accessing it is the interesting part of the equation from my perspective right now because – yeah, well, we'll get into that later. That's right. So you've all, you know, besides the uh, multiple teaching gigs, you've been on the uh, uh, procurement roundtable for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Napa, 
forever as well. That's true. So, so the, the common theme for me to my career has been public service. Uh, because whether you're in the government, whether you're working for a contractor supporting the government, whether you're in an academic uh, environment uh, um, or a consulting environment, the, the constant is, in fact, what's in the interest of the government in order to both achieve their missions, accomplish their objectives, and serve the citizens. I would note, Mark, that uh, I often look at the government as kind of three different types of entities, if you will. There are those like the National Security Establishment, the Defense Department, much of the intelligence community, et cetera, whose work is primarily done for themselves. In other words, almost everything that the Defense Department procures, whether it be goods or services, is really for DOD's use, right? right. It's an internal – now they're doing it for national security sure, purposes. Sure. They're doing it's it to achieve the objectives, thing. right? Yeah. Right. Many other agencies, primarily the civilian agencies, their customers are outside the agency, right? So they're procuring goods and services in order to deliver them to the citizens or some subset of the citizens, right? Right. Whether it's a regulatory environment or a citizen services environment. And then there's a smaller subset of government, uh, General Services Administration, Office of Personnel Management being two primary examples, whose real customers are other parts of the government. Right. And so I think we tend to lump those all together as if they're a single government entity and we have a single federal acquisition regulation, right? But the reality is the purposes and the uses of the of the goods and services being procured or often need to be viewed through the prism of who's the ultimate end customer? Is it an internal customer or is it an external service or mission being delivered there? Okay. Are we going to discuss later on the uh, uh, how mission impacts the acquisition mode? Absolutely. Cool. Uh, I hadn't really thought about it that way, but it's an excellent way to, to view things. So uh, so you've done all this stuff. Let's talk a little bit about PSC itself. Uh, uh, first of all, um, a couple of weeks ago is the first time I've ever spoken at a PSC event, and it was for a relatively new committee that you have there. So it wasn't like the massive PSC uh, conference mode, but I, I had like uh, 30 people in the room and I don't know, another 20 or so on on the webinar. But that was a lot of fun. Those were some very engaged people. I I appreciate you being there and doing that. That's our communications network. It is a a fairly new uh, structure that we have. Uh, One of the things, so I've been at PSC for about two and a half years, right? I I came there uh, at the end of March in in 2016 Mm -hmm. and uh, having left the Defense Department uh, for what I believe to be the final time. And and I actually, (laughs) I I officially retired from federal service. It turns out I actually had 49 years of federal service, but uh, but only had 14 years of service spread out over a 49 year period uh, when I retired. But uh, because my first federal job was in 1967. But the uh, uh, it was the U.S. Post Office Department in those days. It was not a service. It was still a cabinet agency uh, uh, in in an odd twist. uh, uh, um, uh, The the. Post, Postmaster General uh, was later the dean of the LBJ School, where I went to did my graduate work, John Gronowski. So, uh, talk about life coming in full circle. You there never you know in this town. But if you if <laughs> so, I've been at PSC it's for a about, very insular uh, community. <laughs> you you always got to be careful what you say and to whom you say it because it will it will exist uh, uh, for a long time. But the 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 reality is that the uh, uh, the Professional Services Council has to reach so many customers within our membership, if you will, mm-hmm. that we've started to spread out both 
the content. So what you had was a communications network. That's a specific part of our members that's focusing on communications, both strategic communications as well as the day-to-day operations. Right. They didn't have a forum before, particularly for the services community and the services companies. And so we've created that. It's been very popular. Your uh, your talk with them was very well received. I think you got a number of positive feedbacks, and and uh, we did as well. And we got no negative feedbacks, I would note. Uh, so I didn't. There was no, no bad news that came in that I didn't share with you. Uh, but but it cost uh, me a lot. <laughs> but I I really thank you for doing that. But it's the kind of thing where we create a community that needs to have a place to meet and discuss these sorts of things. And we provide both the, the space to do that and the content uh, with speakers such as yourself coming in there. Cool. But, you, you know, PSC has a, a broader role in the universe. You, you picked up uh, – who the hell was it you merged? Who the heck was uh, Tech it? America it was yeah. called at the time. Yeah. Of course, and it, ITAA it, right, and right. somebody else merged to be yeah. Tech America. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so and, – and that was kind of an odd – Thing too, because back when it was ITAA, it was primarily the manufacturers of IT products. I think what you see there is a very interesting dynamic as well. So I talked about the migration of, of the sources of innovation from inside the government to outside the government. You're also seeing a migration uh, in terms of what actually is a service. So there's a lot of things, and IT is a good case in point here, where what the government once bought as a product, they would buy a server, they would buy a software license, they would buy a piece of hardware. Right. They're now buying as a service or maybe even more broadly as a solution. Mm-hmm. Here's what I need to get done. You tell me, the bidders tell me how you're going to help me do that. So what we used to buy as a product, we're often now buying as a service. That's not just unique to the government. Of course, the entire global economy is going that way. And sometimes the government's actually a a little bit behind. Cloud services is another case in point where, uh, you know, it's not as if the data is actually up in a cloud, right? Mm -hmm. I keep reminding people the cloud is a server on the ground somewhere. Uh, it might be in West Virginia. It might be in Ireland, but right. uh, it's on the ground somewhere. There's a server being as long as it's not <laughs> as long as it's not in Russia. That's correct. But I think that kind of evolution. You're right. PSC is really uh, has a number of, of key priorities, and I think uh, if I can just articulate them briefly, Please. and then we can explore any of them that you want. You know, our number one priority is in fact actually to, hold that. Let's take sure. that on the on the uh, right after the break. You're That'll listening be fine. to Amtower. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'll be back with David right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm here with David Berto, uh, <clears throat> president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. You can find them at pscouncil.org. I suggest you do so. If you're not a member, take a look. Uh, David, we were just talking about other things that PSC brings the table. Right. So, so I, I'm going to start with our top priority, and and I think you'll you'll uh, this will resonate with you, Mark, because this is where you where you live every day. Um, we all know that, in fact, the government can do uh, need needs contractor support for almost everything it does for a whole host of reasons. Contractors bring a lot of advantages to the table in the services business. This is particularly true. Whether it's augmenting staff, whether it's access to skills that the government doesn't have enough of, whether it's the flexibility to be able to scale up or scale down, whether it's the flexibility in terms of geography and moving people around, this is the kind of benefit that the government gets from from contractors. So we know that the value of contractors is very high. 
But at the same time, a lot of the customers don't really either recognize that value or want to acknowledge it because there's still a mentality somehow that contractors are second-class citizens and they're not the kind of capability uh, generators that uh, that we both need and should value. Right. So one of our top priorities and the thing we spend our most time on is to continually both remind, illuminate, illustrate, and flow into the rules and regulations and practices of the government that value that contractors bring to the table. So that really is our top priority. In order to do that, we have to help make the government become a smarter customer and a better buyer. Right? And, and that's kind of our second priority. Some of that is the acquisition process and the procurement process and the rules and regulations that go along with that. Some of that is the resources, because without the money, there are no contracts. So there's a lot that comes into play there. And PSC's role there <clears throat> is as an advocate on behalf of the interests of our members, both on the Hill and in the legislative uh, process and the legislative branch, and more importantly, with the executive branch, because the passage of legislation or the enactment of appropriations is only the start of the actual execution process, right? right. It, uh, the 90% of it is actually in the hands of the executive branch. And a big piece of that comes with telling the story in the media, uh, both the trade press or people like you who are expert in this and who spend your time on this, but also the general media who kind of dip in every now and then when there's a story and then they're off to and something else, wrong, right? Yeah. Uh, and so, so that's, that's our, our second priority. There's a couple other priorities worth mentioning we can explore later. One I already touched on, which is innovation. How do you help the government both identify innovation they need to have, especially in services and, and processes, and then access that and incorporate it? Because you can bring it in, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be using it, right? Mm-hmm. And then the fourth piece, and again, this will resonate with you because you've talked about this on your show all the time, is the workforce. Where are we going to get the access to the talent to recruit, to train, to retain, to have a generation of, of folks who are committed to public service, whether on the government side or, or through contractors? Or the contractors Those side. are where we spend yeah. our time and energy. Yeah, and, and that, that leads into a, a whole bunch of areas. But I also want you to uh, talk briefly about – because I, I had a uh, – uh, an obvious misconception when I assume that you PSC represented primarily the larger companies in the market, and that's not necessarily accurate. No, uh, one of the things that that I think is the stronger element of our voice is who we do represent. So we represent, first of all, for-profit companies who are in the government services contracts business. And we define services as any type of service. So, you know, the federal procurement data system, which is kind of the data source of contract data that the government provides, so it's the public source of data for us, characterizes every contract as either a product or a service. Right. right? And so we focus on the services side, but we also recognize that every product has either an implicit or an explicit services tail associated with it because the government doesn't actually own the capabilities to sustain, modernize, upgrade those products. So it relies upon the, the services providers to do that. So really it's across the board. We also represent companies who have the entire federal government as their customer base. So it's not just a Defense Department focus. It's not just a big agency focus. If there's government services contracts, that's in our purview. That's that's a part of our – including – services for the legislative branch and even the judicial branch. So if it's a contract that involves services, we're interested. Finally, we represent companies of all sizes, from the very largest government services contractors, which are the largest government contractors, all the way down to a one-person shop, or maybe they're even doing it just part-time. Right. And and the interesting thing was, <clears throat> before you showed up at the station today, I was having I, – I, I met Mike McDermott, of uh, president of Inquisit, uh, out in Chantilly. He came down here. We, we chatted for an hour, 
And, uh, you know, when it got close to you showing up time, I said, well, you know, do you know David Berteau? And he goes, no, I don't think so. I said, well, you know, he's the CEO of Professional Services Council. He goes, oh, I'm, I'm a member. He is a member. And, 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 and they're a right. small company. Exactly. 100 employees. Exactly. And, and you think about what we offer, right? What we're offering really is, is a similar core set of services, but companies draw from their services based on their needs. A smaller company uh, may, may rely on us for, for – Pure advocacy because they can't afford to have anybody as a lobbyist hired to, to go work their issues, right? Mm-hmm. Larger companies may have their own lobbyists so they can target their own things. But what we often do is we're taking, first of all, the industry-wide approach to the issues. The second thing, Mark, is frequently we can say something that if the company says it, it's either seen as self-serving rather than actually in the public interest, or um, it, it may actually cast a, them in, in a, an improper light with respect right. to their customer, et cetera. Sure. So sometimes we have to raise a problem with a customer that the company wouldn't want to raise because it, it would, would, could rebound to their disadvantage. But right. PSC can raise it from a broader perspective where you're really getting at the broader public policy issues. Yeah, and, and you, you are a 501c... We're a 501c6, but it's interesting. So that's an advocacy structure. But one of the outcomes of the Tech America merger that you mentioned uh, back about four years ago is we acquired a 501c3 foundation. What I've done since I came on board as the, as the president two and a half years ago is we've activated that foundation and we're actually using that as our research arm. So the 501c3, which is the tax exempt, you know, a part of the organization that doesn't do any advocacy, can actually do the kind of research necessary. What we find on a lot of issues is the data aren't there, right? And so nobody's actually done the analysis necessary to move the ball forward. So we can do that analysis in the foundation and we can use both other sources of funding, research grants, outside funding grants from our member companies mm-hmm. to fund that research and then use the research and the research results both in our media outreach and in our advocacy campaigns. So you can use it to educate on multiple fronts. That's right. Bingo. There's a win-win. Uh, it seems to me that you you have to be agile in this business today to be effective. Agile seems to be the uh, the word of the, uh, the decade. Uh, I think you're right. <laughs> um. All right. So did we cover everything about PSC you want to cover? Well, there's one last thing that I would like to to say that uh, you know, I, I talked about our priorities, <clears throat> there, but there's other benefits for members as well. And, and in fact, uh, th- this becomes rather important because I mentioned that one of the things we're trying to do is make the government a smarter customer and a better buyer. Well, I don't know how to do that just for our members. Right. So the entire community benefits to the degree that I'm successful there. So what else do we offer our members on top of advocacy on your issues? And what we offer there is a deep a bench of, of market intelligence and policy insight. Uh, for example, we we pull a market briefing together and we tailor it for a company. So any company, any size can get a briefing from us on where we see the market, where's the money, what are the contract trends inside that market, uh, what are the policy issues and, and regulatory issues that we're wrestling with that come to play there, and kind of what does the future look like going forward. Uh, that kind of market intelligence and policy insight is a tremendous value to membership uh, that, that we bring to the table. The second is networking, because as you know, you mentioned this is a small town, right? I mean, yeah. it's, uh, I know there's 5 million people in the metropolitan area, but boy, it seems to me, I don't know what the other 4.9 million are doing, but 
your circle and my circle tend to be very, very constant here. Right. And, uh, and so what we provide is a lot of ways for that networking with your peers. And that's both useful for the day to day work, but it's also useful for career development and, and moving people forward. The communications network that you spoke at is an example of that. It's useful day to day for the people who are in those jobs, but it's also useful for them for networking for their careers. Well, that would lead me to the question. Uh, um, we chatted at the, uh, you hosted the market connections briefing for the government contractor study. Uh, so what, what drives uh, success in, in contracts? I forget the exact name of the study. But uh, you, you, you were a sponsor of that. We were. And, and I was kind of surprised at first. But then after we chatted at that briefing and I saw that, you know, you were beefing up the communications subgroup side it began to make sense. But what drove you guys to do that? Well, first of all, Market Connections has actually been an associate member of PSC for about 15 years. Okay. So we've had a longstanding relationship with them uh, as a trade association. We actually had done a prior project with them about four years ago where they had done a survey work and we had used the the opportunity to roll that out in a public uh, setting like we did with the one that you were at earlier this year. This was a bigger deal. Uh, because uh, in part because the interests are a little bit higher now, I think, uh, you know, back in 2014, when we did it before, we were right on the heels of sequestration and the government shut down and the future market didn't look quite as bright and rosy as it does right, right now. Uh, 2018 looks a lot better than 2014 did in, in that regard. We aren't discussing bailing. <laughs> <laughs> but what uh, uh, we did by teaming with uh, with Market Connections and also the Merit Group, which was part of a third element of that uh, of that presentation back in uh, a couple of months ago is really taking advantage both of the good work they did at the research level and then translating that into the kind of market intelligence that people need to be able to use it going forward. And I think what you saw was a result of that collaboration. Um, I'm quite excited about the prospect of, uh, of continuing that kind of relationship going forward. We do that, by the way, with other member companies as well. We have, for instance, a, bi- a biennial acquisition policy survey mm-hmm. that we do in concert with another member, Grant Thornton, and, and we publish that every two years we've been doing that uh, i think we're in our ninth cycle now uh, of that and which not only gives us good information from that survey but now we've got longitudinal data that we look at at the changes over time of how the acquisition officials inside the government view their work and view their relationship with contractors and that provides a lot of valuable insight for our member companies yeah i i've been a fan of a lot of things that grant thornton has done since the cal hackerman days Oh, uh, that's so, all right. Goes back a that bit. dates us. Yes, yeah, not not the world. Um, it is the last century, but not that far back into not, the last century. Not that century. far back. Um, so, um, so let's let's take a break and come back and and talk about uh, uh, appropriations. So you're listening to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com dot com at fifteen hundred a.m. Uh, you can find David and the Professional Services Council at P. Council.org. Uh, and David and I will return right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here with David Bordeaux, the CEO and president of the Professional Services Council. Um, I, I'm going to put a caveat here. We're recording this on the Friday before. Um, uh, Mr. Well, the start Friday. of the fiscal year, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, <clears throat> we're hoping that the appropriations bill is actually 
signed. That's right. We we are, uh, Mark, uh, you know, Congress has done a, a remarkable thing uh, this year. They've actually uh, done their regular job. Uh, and and we're applauding them for that, uh, uh, in part because it is so unusual. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, uh, 2018 and the lead up to the start of fiscal year 2019, October 1st uh, being the first day of the fiscal year, uh, for at least the last 10 years, almost every federal agency has started the fiscal year under a continuing resolution with right. all of its constraints and limitations and full uncertainties. Full budget hadn't passed since full 94. Appropriation, uh, right, for everything. We didn't get a full appropriation, but we have roughly about 85% of, of federal discretionary spending has been appropriated and assuming the president's uh, signature uh, in act into law and in place. This has several very important uh, characteristics, right? Number one is agencies can actually plan and execute a full year and they have a year to do it, uh, which they haven't had for a long time. Uh, The second thing is it sets the stage for uh, continuing uh, addressal of the question of future year funding, right? Because we've been under a budget control act now since August of 2011 and FY 12. So that's 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, eight years of, of BCA caps. There are two years to go in the existing law, 20 and 21. Part of the argument for making the necessary adjustments to fully fund government operations in FY 20 and 21 depends on successful execution of FY 19. Because, as you know, uh, you cannot justify any future change in the budget unless you're executing the part you have right now. Yep. One of the questions that I would raise with you for consideration is um, who's had the practice of actually starting the fiscal year with a full appropriation? Uh, you know, uh, we, we've had so many years in a row now, <clears throat> 10 years for DOD, 15 years for the Health and Human Services Department, more than that for other agencies, uh, where they're starting a new continuing resolution. Uh, what we're hoping for and watching for is, uh, is can the government keep the momentum going that we saw happening in August and September of this year, where that full funding is translating into the necessary activities, including the contracts, uh, to keep the government uh, fully operating. And so that's one of the first things we're going to watch for. Okay. Um, and and uh, did you guys play a role in that? Yeah, let me make a couple of comments, right? So, so first of all, uh, if you go back, so fiscal year 19 is the, the start of this year, right? You right. go back to how did we set the target number for government spending for 19? It was actually last February with the agreement of uh, increasing the caps for both civilian agencies and defense for both fiscal year 18, last fiscal year, and fiscal year 19. That increase for DOD was $165 billion over two years, FY 18 and 19. That's about a 15% increase in terms of the caps. But for defense, they had already proposed in the president's budget a significant increase anyway. Uh, So it was only about a 4% increase over what they were planning for. Mm -hmm. Now, if you've got a budget you're planning for and then you get a little bit more money, 4% more money, it's not hard to figure out where you want to put that 4% because your priorities are already in train. For the civilian agencies, it was a different situation. In fact, it was a very odd situation. On Friday, February 9th, Congress passed and the president signed the increase in the caps. For the for FY eighteen it was sixty three billion for civilian agencies and for FY nineteen it was sixty seven billion for civilian agencies. Three days later, Monday, February twelfth, the president proposes the budget for fiscal year nineteen. As I mentioned, defense already had an increase, and in fact, a hundred percent of that increase that was passed on February ninth was in the defense budget on February twelfth. They didn't do it over the weekend; they were planning it that way all along. 
But for the civilian agencies, the president's budget gave back 65 of that $67 billion increase. So this puts civilian agency programs and budget officers and contracting officers in a difficult situation. The Congress has said you're going to get $570 billion in the aggregate across civilian agencies. But the president's budget has said, no, you're going to get $450 billion in in the aggregate across. Now, typically agencies spend to the lower number because that is the prudent thing to do. And you certainly don't want to put yourself in a position of overspending and then having to cut back even further. Right. But Congress began to appropriate to that higher number. So as they were marking up the bills in April, May, and June, and PSC, of course, is engaged with the appropriation subcommittees as they're marking up those bills to make sure that the government's needs are met. Some of those needs, of course, will fund contracts for our members. Others will pay for the government civilians or the grants that those agencies put out. So we were working that all along. The administration actually signed statements of administration policy, issued those statements, threatening vetoes of bills that were funding appropriations at exactly the level that the caps had been increased, right? But the appropriators largely ignored that, and in the end, we got the appropriations that we have in place for many agencies, Energy Department, VA, Labor, Education, Health and Human Services, DOD, and others. And the continuing resolution that passed for those agencies not covered by appropriations is also at that higher level. That's what we did in FY19. I'll I'll come back in a little bit to what happens in FY20 because, of course, the interesting thing is fiscal year 20 is actually only 12 months away from today. Right. Right. And uh, and the caps come back. And uh, and and I will want to talk a little bit about how we deal with those caps coming back and what kind of uh, what, what will have to happen in order for Congress and the administration to reach a deal to revise those caps as necessary for the future. That's uh, going to be fun to watch. I'm yeah. glad it's you guys on the front lines and not me. Um, so let's let's go to uh, uh, the the uh, payments on POD vehicles. So uh, one of the things that that we do obviously is is we <clears throat> monitor uh, uh, the proposed rules and regulations uh, that the agencies implement uh, in order to have contracts take place. You're very familiar. We've got a government-wide system, the Federal Acquisition Regulation, that governs, governs all of, uh, of government procurement. And then uh, the Defense Department has its own supplement, the Defense Federal Acquisition Regulation Supplement, affectionately known as the DFARS. Uh, and, and, uh, and DOD actually was required in the FY17 National Defense Authorization Act. So that's two years ago signed, signed back in, in, in December uh, of, of 2016, uh, was required, Section 831 of that law required them to take a new look at uh, uh, essentially adjusting payments to reward performance, to incentivize performance. This makes great sense from a contract's point of view, right? You don't want to just pay for input. You want to pay for results. Right. And you'd like to have <clears throat> a, a payment structure that incentivizes those results. Um, one of the problems that we've seen is that there's a backlog of statutory changes that have yet to be incorporated into regulation, in part because the administration imposed a freeze on new regulations, in part because the administration required a two-for-one trade for every new regulation you had to get rid of two previous regulations, mm-hmm. and in part because the administration put a new process in place for evaluating the cost-benefit impact of a regulation. 
This is run out of, uh, out of the Office of Management and Budget through the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, affectionately known as OIRA, OIRA yeah. right? <clears throat> and, uh, and they've had a new process in place. And, and that's a legitimate question. How do you update the cost-benefit analysis to be appropriate for the 21st century? So it, it's, uh, it, it's a useful exercise. But all of those things have combined to slow down the amount of time it takes and to reduce the pace of implementation. So you've got a backlog of legislation that has not been implemented. Why does this matter? Well, the program offices and the contracting offices who have to implement this stuff, they're not reading the law and making their own interpretation of how to implement. In fact, we don't want them making their own interpretation of how to implement. You want a standardized interpretation built into the regulations and issued, so that's what they're following. So on its face, this proposed DFARS rule on progress payments and performance-based progress payments was an implementation of, of a statutory requirement. However, the proposed rule went well beyond the intent of the Congress in that uh, in that legislation. I'll be glad to amplify on that a little bit. Uh, please do. All right. So so uh, what the what the rule did was it it proposed a dramatic reduction in the base. So progress payments is basically at its core throughout the course of history. Uh, the government's financing of progress for a contractor who's doing work for the government right. uh, based upon you don't get paid only at the end when you finish the job, but you get paid along the way. <clears throat> if you've ever done a home remodeling project, for instance, you'll pay a little bit at the front end. You'll pay some as progress is being made, and there's always some that you hold back at the end until you're satisfied that the job has been done right. right. Um, part of the rationale for that is that the government can borrow money more cheaply than the contractor can. Uh, because they've got a better credit rating than uh, than anybody else does. And therefore, it doesn't make sense for the government to reimburse companies for their cost of borrowing money when the government can borrow money more cheaply. That's a pretty reasonable economic assertion, right? So that's the basic idea. What this proposed rule does is it changes both the amount of those progress payments and the basis by which you could either increase or decrease that amount. Uh, PSC and, and two other associations in a, in a public comment period uh, did file written uh, 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 complaints and, and concerns uh, about the proposed rule. You can actually find those uh, at our website, pscouncil.org, and you can see the results of that. Um, and, and much of the questions we raised was on the unexecutability of the proposed rule. It would be difficult to tell what the basis of a government decision would be. It would be very hard for a contractor to determine what it needed to change in its own performance in order to achieve uh, the proper level of payments to be able to to maintain the workforce that they need to have to do the work. And the difficulty in executing this, plus it didn't really seem to incentivize performance because one of the problems that you have is how exactly you're measuring performance. Well, it's one thing to measure that from the point of view of a new airplane or a new ship. Because that's fairly well defined in the contract itself. But for services, an awful lot of the time, the definition of the services contracts is input. How many labor hours of what kind of labor categories and what kind of uh, who's going to show up and what they're going to do, rather than defining the results you actually want to achieve. Right. You might, and even instance, that subject. Even that's in the call center, for instance, you, your, your performance might be how fast you answer the phone. Well, let me tell you, if I'm a customer calling a call center, that may be important to me, but far more important to me is does my question get answered and my problem get resolved, right? right? And so I'm really looking at performance a different way than the speed of answering the phone. Right, yeah. You can answer the phone quickly and say, you know, 
uh, please hold. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> or I'm sorry, I can't help you with that. Let me transfer you to another number, right? Right. Uh, and so you really need to have, uh, have performance defined. What's happened here, though, is, is uh, not only did we file these, uh, the, these concerns, and, and other, others uh, did as well on behalf of, uh, of member companies, uh, but now the U.S. Congress has weighed in. Uh, you know, on on uh, Monday, uh, September 24th, uh, the chairman of the Senate Armed Service Committee, Senator Jim Inhofe, the new chairman who took over after uh, Senator John McCain's uh, untimely death, uh, and the chairman of the House Armed Service Committee, Mac Thornberry, uh, jointly signed a letter to the Defense Department that not only raised and echoed some of the concerns that the associations had raised, but raised some additional concerns to DOD and recommended in writing that DOD withdraw the proposed rule and gave them a deadline of October 10th uh, to respond to the concerns. Two of the concerns that were raised, I think, are of great interest to your listeners here, right? One has to do with what does this do to the interests of companies who want to do business with the government? And back to the innovation question where we're looking at. So part of the outside innovation is the government is reaching out to companies who are not traditional contractors. Right. And they may be big commercial companies. They may be commercial uh, development companies. Right. And so uh, what if you're going to say to them, we're going to put a lot of additional constraints, not only on what you do, but how we pay you. Right. Then you're going to have companies that are going to say, why would I want to do business with the government? And so the, sen- the senator and the congressman have raised a very interesting set of questions about how does this do. They've also raised the question that they don't think it complies with the guidance that Congress gave in the statute back in the fiscal year 2017 NDAA. Yeah. So we're going to watch this very closely as it plays out over the next few weeks uh, and moves forward. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I shall return with David right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm here today with David Berteau, President and CEO of the Professional Services Council. One last time, pscouncil.org. Uh, David, the last topic I want to talk about, uh, possibly last, uh, is the uh, uh, security clearance uh, perpetual snafu. <laughs> Well, uh, I mentioned earlier, Mark, that one of our priorities that we work on, not only on behalf of our members, but our government customers, is access to the workforce that we need to get the work done, right? And one of the biggest deterrents to being able to both have the workforce you need and to deploy that workforce appropriately is the backlog in security clearances, right? Uh, it. it spiked up dramatically uh, after 2014 uh, where we had a contract problem with uh, with part of the background investigation contracts in the office of personnel management and then of course in 2015 you had the the famous hack of uh, of security clearance information for 22 million people uh, not only was i included in that but so was my wife and my two children uh, we all got letters uh, warning us of uh, possible wife, consequences yep. uh, and you probably got one of those letters as well um, and 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 as a result of both those things and more more importantly the corrective measures to make sure that things didn't go bad again uh, both in terms of the processes but also in in terms of the systems led to a a real increase in in the backlog Um, i call it a backlog uh, because it's the total number of cases in process right it's been over seven hundred thousand for quite some time in the last three months, based upon data released just last week uh, by, by the executive branch, we've seen about a 10% drop in that number from about 720,000 uh, down to 650,000. This only is really good because it was so high before, but the trend for the first time is in the right direction, and, and, and there's some positive things uh, that, that can come from that. What, what's, what's the length, average length, 
of the process now? Well, there are, there are, of course, there's five different things that we do background investigations for. The two that we spend the most time on are security clearances, a secret level clearance or a top secret level clearance, right? And that's somewhere slightly less than half of those cases are involved in either the initial investigation of those clearances or what we call the periodic reinvestigation. Every five years, if you've got a top secret clearance, every 10 years, if you've got a secret clearance. And so that's over half of the cases. The statutory amount through the uh, Intel Reform and, and Terrorist Protection Act of 2004, the goal is 40 days for a secret clearance, 80 days for a top secret clearance. Right now, we're somewhere around three times that for secret clearances and uh, and, and probably about five or six times that for a top secret clearance. So, so we're a long a ways away. There's another side to the background investigations that's often overlooked, and, and most of this is in the civilian agencies. Even where there's not a clearance for security clearance purposes, there is a need to determine whether or not to to rest public trust in an individual, right? And so that's a suitability or a fitness determination that goes on. This would be in agencies like Health and Human Services, the Veteran Affairs, uh, Veterans Administration, et cetera, right? And, and so that suitability determination is another big chunk of these background investigations. And, and here again, if the government is going to reside trust in an individual, you have to have a basis for that trust. The problem is these processes of doing not only the background investigation, but then adjudicating the results of that uh, investigation and leading to ultimately a decision to place trust or not place trust. These are processes that are rooted in a paper-based, face-to-face, interview-based process uh, that goes back 50, 60, 70 years to the the dawn of the Cold War. You know, uh, I testified before the, the Senate uh, Intelligence Committee earlier this year, and I mentioned the fact, for instance, that I've lived in the same house for 30 years, and I've had the same neighbors for those 30 years, and yet every time I go through my periodic reinvestigation, here's a, a, an investigator sitting there. He's got a piece of paper. He's got a pencil. He's got a clipboard, and he's saying, so, Mr. Berto, where do you live? Um, <laughs> it, it, it's It's a not only a pretty firm matter of public record, it's it's actually doesn't change very fast. Right. So part of the process improvements here is how do you move into the 21st century, both in terms of the data collection you have and in terms of the way you actually use that data. There's some real positive steps. One of the things that Congress did two years ago is they required by law that the Defense Department would pick up all of the responsibilities for both the initial investigations and the periodic reinvestigations for defense-affiliated personnel. This would be military personnel uh, in the Department of Defense. It would be federal civilian employees in the DOD, and it would be the contractors associated with DOD. That's about 65 to 70 percent of the entire universe of, uh, of, of clearances and background investigations. They're required by law to pick that up. What the president proposed in June was let's go ahead and move the rest of the responsibility from the Office of Personnel Management, where it resides today under the National Background Investigation Bureau uh, that's been in place since the OPM hack and the reorganization after that. Let's move all of that over to DOD as well. Um, We don't yet have a specific timeline or plan to implement that president's reorganization proposal. In fact, we don't have that for any of those reorganization proposals that were uh, proposed back in June. Um, But it's our anticipation that uh, the president uh, and the executive branch will move forward doing that and we'll see something uh, pretty soon. Whether DOD just picks up 70 percent of it or picks up the whole thing, what they have proposed is a pretty dramatic change in how we do this. For example, rather than waiting five years to do a periodic reinvestigation, for a top secret clearance or 10 years for a secret clearance. 
Why don't we, in fact, have continuous evaluation and continuous monitoring from publicly available data? It would be financial databases. It would be employment records. It would be education records. It would be criminal records. Data that the Defense Department can get and look at in a real-time basis. Don't wait five years to find out that somebody was indicted, arrested, and convicted for something. Find out at the time. Yep. And, uh, and, and then you would raise a concern and actually, you might have to investigate that concern because an allegation doesn't necessarily mean uh, culp- culpability, right? So you'd right. have to have a little bit of investigation. But you'd focus your investigation on the places where you're at most vulnerable. And for somebody who has no problems whatsoever, you'd basically just continue going forward. This has enormous potential. The problem is how do you scale this? Because – I actually don't know whether this is fewer resources, the same amount of resources but deployed differently, or even more resources in order to do this. Right? Well, it would seem to me that you know you you could automate a great deal of that process, particularly the financials. That's exactly right, and and so, actually, there's a parallel effort underway uh, through the Defense Information Systems Agency, the National Background Investigation Service. They're now calling it NBIS. Uh, which is designed to do some of that automation. You may be familiar with uh, the other transactions authority that the agencies are using, DOD in particular, to kind of non-FAR based, uh, non-acquisition regulation based uh, contracts. There was an announcement back at the end of July of a of an other transaction authority agreement, an OTA agreement with uh, with a vendor uh, to build a new investigations management system, which would be the core of this new automated process to go forward there. And, uh, and that holds great promise. One of the things PSC did is uh, we were concerned that the, uh, uh, the Senate Appropriations uh, Subcommittee for Defense had zeroed out, had, had zeroed out that line for FY19 mm-hmm. uh, uh, because uh, they were not far enough along yet, right, in terms of moving forward. So we worked pretty hard. I sent a letter forward to the committee uh, urging uh, restoration of funds, and, and I'm proud to say that in the Appropriations Act that the president signed on Friday, um, uh, that, uh, enough of that funding was restored that it will not interfere with the, uh, with the implementation. So the parallel of a better process and better systems to be able to automate that uh, offers some great promise for the future. Cool. Final thoughts. Final thoughts is this is a good time to be in the government contracting business. Right? Agreed. The, uh, the, the government has finally enough funding to do all the work necessary to be done. <coughs> the government finally has enough Funding to do all the work that's necessary to be done, um, and they've got the contractor resources available to do that. And so moving forward, I think that we the partnership between the government and the private sector that does the work for those contracts offers a great opportunity to both improve government service for delivery to the citizens and improve national security for the Defense Department. And that's all we're trying to do every single day. There you go. Uh, my guest has been David Berto, President and CEO of the Professional Services Council. One last time, pscouncil.org. David, thanks for coming in. My pleasure, Mark. I look forward to the next time. There you go. And, and there will be a next time. And we're not going to wait that long. Uh, this is not my day job. I do advise companies on all aspects of marketing to the government, particularly uh, uh, building subject matter expert platform, deploying content to support that platform, and utilizing the most underutilized uh, marketing tool available, which is LinkedIn. So if you want to talk about this, give me a call, drop me a line at mark at federaldirect.net. And thank you for listening to Amtower Off Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off Center, sponsored by General Dynamics Information Technology. 
If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. Amtower Off Center, only on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. This just in. Reportedly, pigs can fly. <laughs> We're going live to... Can't take another crazy headline? Well, here's something you can appreciate. The MyGM Rewards card gives you best-in-class rewards with four points for every dollar spent everywhere and seven total points earned per dollar spent with GM, bringing you one step closer to a new GM ride. That's the power of appreciation from us to you. Subject to credit approval, terms and limitations apply. Visit MyGMRewardsCard.com.